Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I pushed the button. Great job. So it's raining again, which is fun. I like that. Um, especially since there was that one day where it was nice. We call that summer. Yeah. Here in, in the state of Maine. And now it's fall. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the first week of May. That's pretty great. That's all right. If it's fall, then it's really close to our uh, our upcoming shows, which I'm very excited about. And we've been working on for the last uh, couple days, getting everything settled. And the tickets for the Boston show are on sale now, which is super exciting. And just moments ago, Nashville went on sale. You can find the links on our social media at this point. Charlotte could be any minute. We'll let you know as soon as as soon as that happens. Won't be long at all. So uh, in the last episode, we had talked about, well, I'd started this tangent about how you have an amazing uh, family story that your mama told. And I believe that mama was a upright citizen who did not lie, but she was telling us the story and it's so amazing that I... You think you're way overselling this. Um, no, it's so amazing. Please tell the story. First of all, my mama, that's what I called my grandmother. And she lived to be 93 years old. And... Uh, she was a delight. She she was just a treasure. I am thankful for a few things more than the fact that I got to interact with her. Um, the first time I met her was in the hospital and she was wearing pearls and blush because she had just had major surgery <laughs> and she wanted to look nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. Mama was a treat. Well, her brother owned a small plane back in the 50s and 60s. It was one of those pontoon airplanes that you land on lakes and he had landed it on a lake about maybe 70 or 80 miles from their house and the lake had frozen over and they they couldn't get the the plane out of the lake so they all piled in the car and made the drive to this other town where the plane was frozen in the lake and my grandfather gets out with my great uncle and uh, my great uncle gets in the plane starts it up my grandfather is pushing the plane to try to break it free from the ice Mm -hmm. which he does 
And then the plane starts moving. Because that's what they do. Right. When they're moving. And he realized that uh, the strut on the wing was in the way and he wasn't able, if he if he tried to let go of the plane and duck down, he'd get hit in the head. Mm-hmm. And so he just jumped up on the pontoon of the plane and the plane took off. And my grandmother said, she <laughs> and my aunt sat there and watched the plane disappear over the horizon with my grandfather hanging off the side of it. <laughs> I love this story. Of course, Little back then, dangling. there were no cell phones or anything like that back in those days. And so they had to get in the car and drive back 70 or 80 miles, not knowing what to expect because my great uncle had no idea my grandfather was hanging off the side of the airplane. So they get back to my hometown, the plane lands, and both my great uncle and my grandfather get out of the plane. And my great uncle said that uh, somewhere over Presque Isle, Maine, he heard a knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandfather was looking in <laughs> at about at about 5,000 feet. And uh, so he, he reaches over and latches the door. My grandfather just climbed in and then they landed the plane. So No big deal. Yeah, that's some of my family lore for you. Now you have a little bit better understanding of why I'm the way I am. Those are my people. It's, uh, it's probably the best story I've ever heard. Thanks, Mama. Mama was uh, one of those people that I always felt like I had to sit up straight around. Yeah. Like, I did not want her to think I was a sloucher <laughs> because then, you know, she'd she'd want us to get a divorce and that mm. would make me sad. Well, we didn't want that. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's my turn to go first. Yes, and please. I'm going to talk about Pope Formosus. Pope Formosus and his untimely end and the weird way that he was treated post-mortem. <laughs> Sounds very intriguing. Uh Mm -hmm. I will also say that Pope Formosa sounds like some sort of process of making beer. Or just a delightful tropical drink. Oh, that does sound good. I'll have a Pope Formosa. Don't skimp on the rum. So he was uh, a Pope in the late 800s. Oh? In the late 800s, yes. And he had lots of trouble. He was always getting into trouble, both when he was alive and when he was dead. (laughs) It's much harder to get into trouble when you're dead. He did a bunch of stuff that angered people. And uh, it wasn't bad. They weren't bad things. But there was a lot of political struggle within the papacy. And there was a lot of competition. And he stepped on the wrong toes along the way. And then he paid a pretty big price for it. And by a big price, I mean that after he was dead, his enemies dug him up and put his corpse on trial. Oh, on trial? They put him on trial a year after he'd been dead and buried. What did he do? Well, according to Atlas Obscura, the AV Club, and Wikipedia, his um, his relationship with the church was always up and down. In 864, Formosus was elevated to Bishop of Porto Santo Rufina in Rome, and then sent to Bulgaria as a missionary. He uh, he went over there and hung out with Bulgarians, and he was a great guy, and people loved him. They're like, hey, Formosus, come to my house and party, you know? Right. And, and he would, and they loved him. They loved him. And so they wanted him to be their bishop. And the Pope said, no, you're already bishop. You can't, 
You can't make those kinds of decisions on your own. I make those decisions. Stop making decisions for me. Even though he wasn't making decisions, the the citizens of Bulgaria had requested that. Got it. So the Pope was a bit of a control freak. Yes. The request was denied by then Pope Nicholas I. Bishops were not allowed to move from one post to another. Oh, that but, seems weird. But, but uh, Formosus's popularity was, uh, was noted. Historians say that that could have been really about his only crime, was that he was really popular in Bulgaria. Oh, Okay. Pope Nicholas dies in the year 867, and Pope John VIII becomes Pope, or John VIII becomes Pope. And um, he just didn't like Formosus from the beginning. Because he was so popular in Bulgaria? Yeah, exactly. Such a weird thing. I guess uh, what happened was Formosus fled Rome because of the disagreement with the Bulgarian thing. And uh, the new Pope publicly claimed that Formosus had corrupted the Bulgarians. He had, according to the Pope, convinced the Bulgarians not to accept any other bishop in his place, and uh, that this was the stepping stone to Formosus's usurping the papacy itself. Okay, that was a tough sentence. Yeah. John excommunicated Formosus and, and several of his associates. So the people of Bulgaria were like, we are into Formosus. Right. Can he be our bishop? Mm-hmm. And then the Pope was like, no, you don't get to do that. And then this new pope takes over and he is like, I'm really still kind of mad about how much Bulgaria likes you. Right. And because there was friction, some tension building between Formosus and the, sec- the, the newer pope, he fled Rome. But then Pope John VIII died and Formosus's name was cleared. Oh, good. And he returned to Porto as bishop. Nine years later, Formosus himself was elevated to the papacy, where he remained until his death at the age of uh, of 70. How did Bulgaria feel about that? They were tickled. They were great. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then Formosus uh, alienated himself even further from, uh, from a bunch of people because just before Formosus' uh, time as pope, I'm going to stop saying that. That's the last time. Stephen V crowned Guy III as Holy Roman Emperor. But... Um, when Formosus became uh, Pope, he was nervous about Guy's aggression. So he offered the uh, emperorship to Arnoff of Carathenia. All he had to do was come in and invade a- Italy and take it. In other words, he said, I don't like the current emperor. Yeah. So I like this guy better. So if you can come in and, and kick his ass, you can have Rome. And so. Well, that's kind of shady. Yeah. So Arnoff's invasion failed. Ooh. Um, Ooh, that's yeah. a rough one to lose. Yeah, but soon after that, Guy the Third died anyway. Oh, so Formosus again said to Arnoff, "Hey, if you go in there now, you can overthrow Guy's son Lambert the Second. And so on the second attempt, he succeeded, and Formosus crowned Arnoff Holy Roman Emperor in 1896. Arnoff suffered a stroke that same year and uh, died shortly after after taking power. At that point, Lambert retook the throne, and um, the anti-Formosus sentiment was running extremely high. I would imagine. At this point. Because I bet after Lambert Jr., 
lost the country there. He was pissed. But I bet a lot of people were like, this wouldn't have happened if it was your dad's country. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so he had to deal with all that, like, mixed emotion. And he's already dealing with the loss of his dad. And he's got a lot going on right now. Yeah. He had a full Roman plate. Plata? Plata. Is that? I don't know. I don't know. So shortly after Arnulf died, Formosa died. Like, within weeks. Oh. He died, too. And that led to one of the strangest moments in papacy history. When he died at age 70, his successor, Pope Boniface VI, seemed to have no quarrel with Formosus, but he died only two weeks after he uh, he took over the, the Pope ship. Oh, no. The papacy. I like Pope ship. I think that's fun. I picture it like an actual ship. So the, his chair that he sits in is sure. like ship-shaped. Yep. And the sail looks like his hat. Yeah. They kind of mirror each other. It's, it's fun imagery. So after uh, Pope Boniface dies, after two weeks in office, Stephen VI becomes Pope, and he hates Formosus. He has a bone to pick with Formosus, even though Formosus is dead. Is it a Bulgaria bone? It could be. So he has Formosus dug up after a year. Has him dug up. They put on his, uh, his papal vestments. They dress him up in his Pope suit. And then they sit him in the Pope throne that they had. Uh-huh. And they held a trial. What? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because he uh, usurped the papacy, you see. Yeah, but I mean, what to what end? What it, What's the goal here? What do you, like, they he, want a post-mortem be able to say you were tried and found guilty of? Yep. Yeah. They wanted to say that. that's kind of, I mean. Then excommunicate all of his associates and undo all of the things that he did and pretty much erase any possible good thing that that this pope had done how do you put somebody on trial when they're dead and can't speak for themselves well you appoint a deacon to speak for the dead guy they actually had a a deacon stand next to the corpse i I wonder if it was like a ventriloquist act (laughs) you know like hey judge hey no i didn't mean to do that oh i'm a bad person Oh, no. Oh. Like that. (laughs) Is the, um, (laughs) is the deacon on? The deacon was appointed to do that by the Pope. So, yeah. So, the deacon's not pro-dead Pope. No. So, how can he? Oh, judge. (laughs) I'm a bad Pope. Mm -hmm. I did bad Popey things. When I was Pope. So um, he was found guilty. They stripped the corpse of his uh, papal vestments. Then they cut off the three fingers that he used for blessings while he was alive. Rude. Yeah. They invalidated all of his acts as Pope, including, ironically, ordaining Stephen himself as a bishop who ultimately became Pope. Oh, but and, that one's still okay. But that one, that, that one, one's okay. That, that one's one. stand. That yeah, one's that stand. one's okay. Yeah, Go no, ahead. don't worry yeah. about that. Yeah, we're good. That's fine. Then his body was buried. But they, then they got to thinking, that's not enough. So they dug him up and they threw him in the river. Stop it. They did. What? <laughs> Again, to what end? For why? I don't understand. <laughs> How did Bulgaria feel about this? Bulgaria was ticked. Yeah? Oh, yeah. So the goal really here was to turn the public uh, opinion of um, Formosus against him. 
I and, can't imagine. And toward Pope Stephen. I would imagine it would do exactly the opposite of that because it's creepy AF. Yeah. Well, it did exactly that. Thank you. Even in losing the trial, Formosa's kind of won. Nah. The public viewed digging up a former pope's corpse as somewhat distasteful. Sure. At the sure. very least. And the public opinion uh, turned against Stephen. Stephen was deposed, he was imprisoned, and strangled while he was in jail. Oh, no. Now, that's not okay. Oh, man, this is a real roller coaster. You know, where I come from, strangling the bishop means something entirely different. <laughs> Meanwhile... And that's the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Formosus's body washed up on the banks of the, of the river and started performing miracles... According to what? the locals. Well, they, yeah, apparently his body, people would touch it and it would cure them and you know, stuff like that. That was, that was the rumor. It was rumored to be performing miracles. I'm sorry. People were just putting their hands on a dead Pope bloated yeah. river corpse. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Go yeah. ahead. So Pope Stephen's gone and his successor, Pope Romanus. He only served 92 days before being forced out of office. His successor, Pope Theodore II, annulled the trial, which, by the way, it was called the Cadaver Synod. And if you Google Cadaver Synod, there's just a, a shit ton about just this particular Got it. corpse trial. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Pope Theodore II annulled the Cadaver Synod excommunicated seven cardinals who had participated and had Formosus reburied once again, this time in St. Peter's Basilica. Oh. Great honor. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like kind of they made this almost martyrish kind of situation out of something that yeah. could have been pretty chill, but yeah. instead you made it a thing. Pope Theodore II accomplished all of that in 19 days and then died. So he was only in there 19 days. It's There's a lot of weirdness here. Uh, there's a lot of jockeying for position, mysterious deaths being sure. forced out. There's a lot of stuff, very political stuff going on. The next six years saw three popes and one short-lived anti-pope. Do you know what that is? I really genuinely don't. It's somebody who has claimed the rightful popeship even though somebody else was legitimately named Pope, they say, no, that should have been me. And they have uh, uh, enough people backing them to challenge it. So in that six years, three popes, one short-lived anti-pope, and then Sergius III had a relatively longer uh, seven-year reign. Sergius had been one of the judges at the Cadaver Synod, and he overturned Theodore's rulings. Reversing the verdict back to guilty. Oh, jeez. So he dug the guy back up again. No, he did not. Yeah, he did. He dug him back up and they held another trial. Oh, no, not another trial. No. Oh, wait a minute. I was, oh. And so they found him guilty again. This time they cut off his head. But. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So did they think it was going to go different this time? Because this reminds me of like a high school, like one of those young adult movies where it's like <laughs> the bad kids keep making the same bad decisions over and over again. And yeah. somehow, you know, the 
the Pope prevails. I I got my <laughs> messages crossed there, but you yeah. know what I'm getting at. Mixed I mean, metaphors. they're just making yeah. the same bad decisions over and over again. Over. And and over it again. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Do they think that cutting off his head is going to make the public more anti him because he was performing miracles as a fingerless bloated, bloaty pope. bloated pope corpse? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Apparently, they thought that uh, the uh, public had a short memory. Sure. Was he reburied after the head was taken that, off? That is unclear. In fact, there are some historians that say that that second trial never took place, although it's referenced many, many times in historical documents. Mm. There is a list of popes that are buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and uh, it includes the name Pope Formosus. So to the best of our knowledge, that's where he is. I don't know if uh, he was disinterred beheaded and put back or if he was never disinterred Mm. there seems to be some question about that but uh regardless that was a shitty afterlife yeah i just i think that there's some real hard looks that need to be taken (laughs) at behaviors (laughs) repeated actions that lead to Mm. the same i mean maybe some self-care sure. would would lead to some better decision making i don't you know if they did behead him you know after the second trial sure and they decided to have a third trial they could have just instead of you know appointing a deacon to speak for the cadaver they just could have made a, like a sock puppet and in you know put his head like lamb chop yeah like lamb chop oh no i didn't do that i hate bulgaria now if his head was separate from his body yeah i'm just trying to figure out how that ventriloquist that ventriloquy would yeah. take place. I'm, I don't know exactly. Um, probably. I mean, really, could you could just jam your hand up in there. Right. That's what I was thinking. You know, oh. make a puppet out of it. Oh, out know, of him. Out of his head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I like misunderstood. A, like but we both got puppet. there. Yeah. Okay. Right. Basically, what we're saying is that it would be a good idea <laughs> to promote dead Pope cadaver puppetry. Ooh, that's a, that's a rough one. I think there's a market. (laughs) And now it's time for that thing in the middle. This is a phrase that I'm just learning about. Americanisms. (laughs) These are phrases and words that Americans use that really irritate the rest of the world. Uh, The BBC did a survey. Tell us the Americanism that annoys you most. Here are a few of them. Graham Nicholson in Glasgow said... I caught myself saying shopping cart instead of shopping trolley today, and I was thoroughly disgusted with myself. I've never lived nor been near the U.S. either. According to Chris from the U.K., the phrase that makes him cringe to no end is touch base. I use that quite a bit, actually. Well, it's a baseball thing. Number three, I'm a Brit living in New York. The one that always gets me is the American need to use the word bi-weekly when fortnightly would suffice just fine. That's from Amy. Amy... Unfortunately, I know of no one in the United States that uses the term Fortnite, let alone Fortnightly. Though I 100% support you in that because we should totally be using it. 100% Fortnightly. Using 24-7 rather than 24 hours, seven days a week. Or even just all day, er day. Er day. Please stop it. No, I will not. Number one actually is my bad. Saying my bad after a mistake. I don't know how anything could be as annoying or lazy as that. That's from Simon Williamson in Lymington, Hampshire. Yeah, sorry about that. That's you. We don't even have to. Uh, our, no. Our no. Okay. This is the box of oddities. Your mileage may vary. So we got a message from Jess. 
And this came in after the episode where we talked about Jumping Frenchmen of Maine. And we were so excited to read this email. It goes a little something like this. I am going to paraphrase because it's long. Okay, all right. Uh, Hello, my beautiful freaks listening about Jumping Frenchmen of Maine. I actually have this disorder, but it's a very mild case. I've gotten better now that I'm adult, but I still have what my doctor calls the reaction tick to a certain extent. I am a female, so about 1% of the affected, considering the majority, are male, which is really interesting. Wow, that is. That's really interesting. Uh, Jess comes from a small town in Louisiana, way, way, way south. She writes, think swamp people life, literally. (laughs) (laughs) And and we had mentioned that, that uh, it's prevalent in areas in Louisiana and northern Maine because Acadian French people in Maine came from... Louisiana. They well, migrated that's, there. That's the assumption. And there they call it Ragin Cajun syndrome. Her papa also had it. According to him, she writes, we have it due to a curse from swamp spirits. <laughs> that's a whole nother story on its own. Whoa. And I want to hear it. Yes, please. Thank you. As a child, gunshots, train horns, fireworks, etc. put me into full-blown seizures, toasters, opening biscuit cans. My older cousin jumping out and scaring me would make me stiffen up and then turn to jelly and collapse. However, I'm able to control it much better with anxiety meds and therapy, even though my husband thinks it's funny to open a biscuit can near me. Mm. I make them homemade now, alleviating the (laughs) need to watch my back making breakfast. Nicely done, (laughs) Jess. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate that. It's incredible to read a firsthand account. Yeah, because it's a really unusual disorder. Yeah. And that came in while we were at the grocery store. So we took a picture with a nasty can of biscuits and (laughs) sent her a picture with a big thumbs down. Big thumbs down. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. What you got for me, my love? Richard Warren Sears started a mail-order watch business in Minneapolis in 1886. Is this a Sears catalog? It's about the Sears catalog, but a very specific okay. part of the okay. Sears catalog. Okay, okay. Let's love, get into it. I love the history of mail-order catalogs. Listen. Okay, no, I'm serious. <laughs> okay. That sounded really sarcastic, but... <laughs> it did, it did. but no. I'm already nervous about this. <laughs> okay, no, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. okay. So, okay, so Richard Warren Sears, he's got this mail-order watch business in Minneapolis. It's 1886. It's called the R.W. Sears Watch Company, and then he sold it, and like two years later, established a new mail-order firm selling watches and jewelry with Alva Roebuck as his partner. They were operating as the A.C. Roebuck Company. And then in 1893, they renamed the company Sears, Roebuck and Company and began to diversify their product line. So they weren't just selling watches anymore. Uh, They were offering much more in their catalogs. They were kind of like pre-internet Amazon. Yeah. By 1894, the Sears catalog had grown to 322 pages. It included many new items, sewing machines, bicycles, sporting goods, even automobiles. By 1895, the company was producing a 532-page catalog. Sales were greater than $400,000. In 1893, more than $750,000. They're growing fast is the point, and they're adding new items all the time. Dolls, stoves, groceries, and building supplies. So before the Sears catalog, farmers near small rural towns usually purchase supplies from um, general stores, you know, locally, because that's how you had to buy things. And usually they were on credit and they had a narrow selection of goods. They didn't have the ability to buy in bulk because the stores didn't have the ability to buy in bulk. So things were really priced very high. Prices were negotiated and relied on uh, the storekeeper's estimate of a customer's creditworthiness. It was super shady. And Americans, especially in areas dominated by Jim Crow racial segregation, who really benefited from the opportunity to buy items not from a local shopkeeper, 
African-Americans were able to buy things and didn't have to have some shopkeeper decide whether or not they should be able to buy their goods. Or or whether or not they should sell it to them um, at the same price that they sold stuff to exactly. white people. Yeah. So Sears took advantage of this by publishing catalogs offering the wide selection of products at very clearly stated prices. And in 1906, there was a Sears manager named Frank Cushel, and he was given the responsibility uh, for the catalog company's unwieldy, unprofitable building materials department. So sales were down and there was an excess inventory just kind of hanging out in the warehouses. So he is credited with suggesting to Richard Sears that the company assemble kits of all the parts needed to sell entire houses through mail order. Fascinating. So that's what we're talking about. Sears house kits. Mail order houses. Mail order houses. So it's 1908 and Sears issued its first specialty catalog for houses. It's called the Book of Modern Homes and Building Plans. It's actually that same year that the Aladdin Company of Michigan had offered for sale the first kit homes through mail order. So Sears isn't the first company to do this. But they were right at the threshold. That's right. Of it. Okay. And Sears mail order catalogs were already in millions of homes. So they had an advantage to say, oh, yeah, you can buy your house from us, too. Whereas any other company, it was just like, hey, we've got a catalog with just houses in it. Yeah. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to look at it? So they were able to promote their quote unquote modern homes to large numbers of prospective customers through its general merchandise catalog and 44 house styles were available the first year. That's incredible. And they had a wide range of price points starting at $360. Wow. Going up to 28.90. So, I mean... 28000 No, 2890 Okay, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, um, right off the bat, they sold their first home, and things are going well. As sales are growing, Sears expanded its production, shipping, and sales offices to locations across the U.S. Again, they were looking for ways to make this even more affordable, even more appealing to every American. So Sears operates a lumber mill in Illinois, and later they constructed a mill in New Jersey, and then they purchased the Norwood Sash and Door Company in Ohio. And these mass-produced products gave them the ability to offer incredible deals on homes. I mean, you just have to put them together. Shipping something like that today is a hassle. I, I wonder how they overcame all the obstacles you know, back in the early 1900s of, oh, I don't know, mailing a house. It's incredible when you consider how many of these homes were sold and they're, they're shipped by rail car. Also take into account how many pieces go into a home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pre-cut framing timbers were in an innovation that was pioneered by the Aladdin Company. Um, and they were offered in by Sears in 1916. So pre-cut lumber was cut to the appropriate lengths at the appropriate angles based on where that timber would be used in the house. And it was actually not until 1916 that that was the case. Before 1916, they sell, they sent all the lumber and stuff, but you had to cut those angles. I see. Yeah. This was a whole nother ball game. So 
Pre-1916, they're considered catalog houses, but not considered kit houses. Okay, okay, gotcha. Construction of a house with the pre-cut lumber reduced construction time by up to 40%. Did they offer returns? Can you imagine? Um, I like to return this house because I don't like the color. <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't accept returns of items that have been assembled. Yeah, yeah but... Yeah, but I... <laughs> I don't, I don't like the color. Can I keep it and get my money back? <laughs> so, um, as we mentioned, entire homes would arrive by railroad. Carved staircases, nails, varnish. Families would pick out the houses according to their needs, tastes, and pocketbooks because there were these designs. But you could customize plumbing electrical fixtures heating systems they were not included in the base price but they could be included at an additional cost and the modern homes features of central heating indoor plumbing and electrical wiring were for some families in the states the their first experiences with these things i was gonna say that uh, back then probably electrical was a luxury upgrade yeah absolutely and consider that you have this catalog in your home and you can see it day after day after day. And there's this beautiful house, this little drawing of a beautiful little house mm -hmm. and it's looking at you yep. and it's cheaper than any house that you ever thought that you could build. And all of a sudden it just seems like, gosh, we could do this. William, we could do this. We could buy this house. Right. So anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. It's uh, 350 bucks. <laughs> So from 1908 to 1940, Sears, Roebuck & Co. sold between, it's estimated, 70 to 75,000 homes. What the fuck? Right? Are you kidding me? I had no idea. Over that time, they designed 447 housing styles. Uh, they ranged dramatically in style. So there was an elegant... Uh, Ivanhoe design, which had French doors and art glass windows. And then there was the goldenrod, which had like a three room, no bath cottage for summer vacations, that kind of thing. And you could really choose to uh, customize based on your, your tastes and budgets. According to Sears archives, modern homes catalogs came to advertise three lines of homes aimed for customers' financial means. So there was the honor built, the standard built, and the simplex sectional. Honor built uh, were obviously the most expensive and finest quality. There were some details that were uh, about quality builds as well as quality materials. So like uh, they included more pieces so that your spacings were smaller and that kind of thing. I don't know much about building. So, I mean, I get it sort of, but saying, oh, the rafters were spaced at 14 and three eighths doesn't really, you know, <laughs> but there was like, um, it's like 16 on center. Right. The, yeah, yeah. You gotta, that's the uh, standard studs Yeah, for studs. Yeah. yeah I yeah. knew that. Okay. <laughs> because, um, I like those little, uh, between the stud set in cubbies. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember talking about that one time and you were like, it's gotta be 16 on center. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever. Just cut it out. I don't care. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> 
So uh, Sears catalogs also reported that standard built homes, the second level, they were best for warmer climates. So they didn't they weren't built with like insulation in mind. And the simplex sectional was mostly like cottages or camps, that kind of thing. Sure, sure, sure. And by 1911, modern homes catalogs included illustrations of house interiors. So the home buyers could really down to cabinets and all the stuff, the the window dressings. They could they could do it all from Sears. That's crazy. Sears Roebuck promised that a man of average abilities could assemble a Sears kit home in about 90 days. No detail was overlooked. Both manual and blueprints instructed homeowner as to the correct spacing, even, of the 750 pounds of nails. Wow. Yeah. And they didn't have nail guns. No. At least consumer nail guns. (laughs) But um, the... They say, you know, the the 90 days, an average dude could put up his house, but a lot of people really did the whole old-fashioned barn-raising kind of thing with these Sears kits, which I just find to be one of the more endearing things that I can think about that time period is just that that community community. coming together to put together a home and how speedy you probably could have done it if you had all that help. So the... These houses weren't just for the suburbanites. Sears expanded its line to reflect the growing demand for like rural homes, as well as farm buildings and barns. The barn catalog boasted a variety of scientifically planned farm buildings, which I don't know what that means, (laughs) but it sounds like a bunch of hooey. More like pseudo-scientifically planned. Right. But anyway... Uh, They were simple. They were easy to construct. They were inexpensive. It was particularly attractive to farmers, as you can imagine. This is kind of neat. Some enthusiasts estimate that about 70% of Sears houses are still standing today. I had read something about that not too long ago, that not only is there a large percentage of Sears homes still standing today, but they're quite sought after. They're incredibly sought after. When I said enthusiasts... I meant it. There are Facebook groups dedicated to Sears houses. There are uh, groups of people who hunt down Sears homes that people didn't know were Sears homes. Wow. Determining that your home is a Sears home is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The last Sears Modern Homes catalog was issued in 1940. And there are some debates about, like we talked about in the early days, what exactly constitutes for a Sears home. And of course, you could have bought the kit and not put your house together right away. So there's no way to know when the last Sears home was built. That's true. But in 1940, Sears also supplied building materials for homes built in FHA developments. And they were called the Sears Home Club Plans. So uh, FHA was buying kits from Sears to put together these communities for like low income housing. <laughs> and it worked out really well, of course, because it, it was really low cost and it was something they could do again in bulk and benefit from that. If you go to searsarchives.com, you can find the definition of like what is a Sears home. And they've got the history of the homes as well as images of homes by date. So you can see which houses were available in which catalogs. 
And there really is an incredible variety of styles. Um, if you go to Facebook and search for Sears Homes, you can see that there are groups of people who upload photos of their Sears Homes. And there are groups that help you identify if your home is a Sears Home. Martha Washington model originally was one of the more up high end mm-hmm. houses. Mm-hmm. It was around twenty six hundred to thirty seven hundred. Um, that works out to about thirty seven thousand to fifty thousand dollars today. Okay, um, but in twenty sixteen, one of them sold for a million dollars. Holy shit! So they are they are sought after. It yeah. is a thing. And uh, I was reading one of the blog posts about how to identify if your home is a Sears home because there are a lot of designs. Like a lot of people would just take the design and then have their builders build it. They wouldn't necessarily buy the kit. So right. that's, that doesn't count as a Sears no, home. No, it can't. So um, there are lots of uh, fun little ways. Like one of the details is at the bottom of a staircase where you have the baseboard coming down the side of the staircase. Right, right. Along the wall. Mm-hmm. And then where it would meet the baseboard that is on the floor right. meeting that. Um because that angle would be hard to cut, there is typically just a block that meets those two pieces. So if you have a block in your baseboard at the bottom of your staircase, that's an indicator that that might be a Sears home. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then some. It's like a treasure hunt. It really is. They're, uh, they tell you to look for exposed wood because all of them would have been stamped so that the the people building would know where to put them. Um, And then there are also things like certificates that people would paste in their basement. So like next to the the basement stairs, there's a little certificate that says this is a Sears and Roebuck home. Interesting. Yeah, if you can find that, that's that's pretty much a kicker right there. Yeah, I would think though that maybe during that particular time, those kits were looked down upon as lesser than stick-built, well, more traditional homes in the neighborhood because, you know, you're buying it as a kit. There was nothing in anything that I read that indicated that that was the case. It may be, maybe that was well, uh, something that would... socially, but I didn't see anything okay. that, that that would lead me to believe that that's the case. Because if, if it was the case, then people would try to disguise the fact that it was a, uh, a Sears home. And, and consequently, there's probably a lot of undiscovered Sears homes still out there. I was able to Google Street View a few of them. Yeah. And it's really, I don't know why I think it's so interesting, but I really do like seeing them. And they're very often because they are this special type of home and because they are sought after, they're beautifully taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and be- there is a there are people who are trying to start registries so that they can yeah, go and yeah. see all the standing Sears homes. That's wonderful. It's a real interesting affinity group yeah it really yeah. Is. I, I think it's fascinating it is. and uh i can't stop looking at the designs like there's and of course you know model homes are a thing now kit homes are a thing now sure, sure. Um, especially like log cabin kits are, yeah. are a big deal that was uh, there was a company here in maine that started a, a log cabin kit company and they started it out by using surplus telephone poles really that was how they got into it that's super cool yeah anyway that's Sears homes, Sears kit homes, Sears catalog kit homes, (laughs) modern homes by Sears, whatever you want to call it. 
the whole catalog industry back in those days, fascinating. For example, Montgomery Ward mm-hmm. catalogs. Did you realize that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that story came from the yes. Montgomery Ward company? Yeah. That they asked one of their illustrators to come up with a coloring book for kids at Christmas time um, at Montgomery Ward. And he came up with the whole Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer story, and they started selling them in the catalog, and, you know, there you go. And even though Montgomery Ward owned that because the guy who came up with it was an employee, Mm -hmm. they later gave the rights to his children. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's pretty great. You don't often hear those stories of like, hey, this big company was awesome to their employee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love it. Let's end on that note. (laughs) Box of Oddities live show, Halloween week. We're excited about it. Yeah. In fact, we got an email from a guy in San Francisco. Oh my gosh, Rob. Rob, he bought his ticket, VIP ticket in Boston. He bought his airplane ticket from San Francisco to Boston. That just blows my mind. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty incredible. And uh, we've already seen, uh, because we're in New England, we have, you know, like a lot of our people are coming to this show, which is yeah. uh, going to be really neat slash weird. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you then, and we look forward to seeing you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019, all rights reserved Hi, I'm Neil And I'm Ken And we are from the Triviality Podcast A pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>